We return to bringing light into darkness. Uh, We rejoin our program in which we were discussing the various examples that declassified documents have shown to describe how our government has often deceived the American public in order to get a foreign policy outcome that they desire. Remarkably, using the potential death of astronaut John Glenn during the February 1962 launching, he was the first one to orbit, right, the Earth. And there was not absolute certainty that he would survive that mission. Obviously, there was some certainty or else he wouldn't have been sent up. But there was a chance that it would fail. And they thought, well, the first attempt in 62 to put an American into orbit as a false pretext for war with Cuba, the documents show, should the rocket explode and kill Glenn, they wrote, quote, the objective is to provide irrevocable proof that the fault lies with the communists and uh, Cuba, of Cuba. Another was to fly a low-level U-2 flights over Cuba with the intention of having one shot down as a pretext for war. Meanwhile, the propaganda war went on. In October of 1960, Radio Swan that we in- mentioned earlier ran a feature corroborating by falsified documentation declaring that the new Cuban government planned to seize all children and send them to Russia. In August 8th of 1961, the Cuban security forces found a forged document already in circulation claiming parental authority should be transferred to the state. Instilling such fear you can imagine as a parent. Between late 1960 and 1962, fearful parents sent some 14,000 children out of the country, vast majority without the parents. Those children subsequently found themselves interned in child children camps or with U.S. families as their guardians. This is how you generate hate for Cuba. We've talked on other shows the types and levels of terrorism, whether it's biological or bombings and sabotage. So we won't go into all the details there, but just know 3,400 people or more are dead and close to 2,100 incapacitated by these terrorist kind of biological bombings and sabotage that emanate from U.S. shores. The United States' complicity in hijacked terrorism between 1959 and 2001, there were 51 Cuban airplanes that were hijacked. While confiscating many of the 51 planes, the U.S. has failed to punish a single hijacker as of May of 2003. Meanwhile, Cuba has sentenced 69 of those responsible for 71 cases of planes hijacked in the United States and flown to the island. The other two hijackers were handed over to U.S. legal authorities. That's the measure of integrity or lack of integrity. Yet these factual outcomes are completely kept from U.S. mainstream press, completely kept out of the opinion shaping in the United States about Cuba. Just one of the terrorists that was on the CIA payroll, Luis Posada Carias, he's a demolition expert. He was trained in the 1960s by the CIA on the CIA payroll from 1965 to 1976. And he was involved and had knowledge of the 1976 Cuban civilian airline bombing where the plane, it was the worst aviation disaster, I believe, in the history of the hemisphere at that time. Posada was found in possession of a terrorist target list essentially a scouting report on potential sites related to Cuba. The Venezuelan who, who drafted this report, Hernan Ricardo Lozano, was employed by Posado in, in Caracas in front of a House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on International Organization, Human Rights and Oversight. Peter Cornblue testified, the director of the National Security Archives, and his testimony was on November 15, 2007, Ricardo, along with a subordinate named Freddy Lugo, had placed the bombs on the plane before it took off from Barbados 
As soon as the mission was accomplished, Ricardo placed phone calls to both Posada and his co-conspirator, Orlando Bosch. Within hours after the plane went down into the ocean, multiple FBI sources identified Posado and Bosch as engineers of this terrorist attack. The airplane downing, which over 70 people died, was in, I think, 1976. If we go back, though, to the 60s of this contemporary period of the Bay of Pigs, more than a dozen covert releases of infectious disease agents have purportedly been carried out by the CIA in Cuba. A disease of sugar cane in 1962... 1972, an outbreak of African swine fever that almost wiped out the whole pig population in Cuba. There was an epidemic of hemorrhagic type 2 dengue fever in 1979 to 1981 that sickened about 100,000 people, including killing 158. Of those, 101 were children. In 1984, Aracena testifies to having, this is Aracena, is Eduardo Aracena. He's the head of the Omega-7, one of many terrorist groups that was nurtured in the United States. In 1984, Aracena testified to having introduced quote-unquote germs into Cuba as part of the United States biological war against Cuba, affirming that the dengue outbreak that we just mentioned that killed 101 children was introduced by terrorist groups into the island. Two days before the Bay of Pigs invasion, the CIA sabotaged El Acanto. That's a big old main department store in Havana in April of 1961 resulting in deaths and total destruction of the of the property. A number of diplomats were assassinated. We won't get into all those specific but this is important. This is this is the context in which the Cuban government and the people of Cuba were defending themselves from. Returning to the specifics of the Bay and Pigs invasion, the original plan was to land in the Trinidad area of, of, of Cuba, which is a little bit farther down the coast, where they were closer to the Escambray Mountains. So if, if the invasion went south, they could scuttle on up and create a, a, a rebel opposition kind of uh, status in those mountains. Apparently, JFK was concerned about covering up the United States' role, and he favored a nighttime landing at the Bay of Pigs. The Bay of Pigs had a suitable airstrip on the beach from which bombing raids could be operated from. The plan was that once the bay was secured, the provisional Cuban government in arms set up by the CIA would be landed and then immediately recognized by the U.S. government as a legitimate government. The new government would request military support, and then a new full-scale intervention would take place. This is an important indication here. This is why the invasion had to be repelled so quickly, as Fidel Castro has said, that they didn't want to give them any chance to set up that provisional deal. We had major, I think it was the Essex and other major carrier or large Navy ships out on the coast just waiting for that recognition, I imagine, that never came. But here, let's return back to the deception. This is a major theme of this show is the ways that we have seen our government and intelligence deceive the American public. We're aware of the false claims in Iraq and so many other places, but this is in Cuba. This is many years earlier. In the book, The Invisible Government by David Wise and Thomas B. Ross, it was published by Random House. It uh, described the operations and activities of the CIA, and it had a section on this Cuba issue. And on April 15th, 1961, this is when the initiation of the attack on Cuba began with airstrikes against Cuba's Air Force, which I may indicate 
was not even an Air Force. It was some planes that I think had less than 12 aircraft, some uh, T-33s, Sea Furies, uh, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But anyhow, Mario Zuniga, he's a 35-year-old Cuban exile pilot with no co-pilot, took off from Puerto Cabezas. This is the airfield that they used to launch the invasion of Cuba. This is in Nicaragua. He took off in his B-26, and he headed for the Miami International Airport some 834 miles away. So this is a coordinated activity, if you will. A staged stunt to deceive the American public. The plane had been painted with fake Cuban markings to make it appear that it was a Cuban pilot defecting from Cuba. It had also been machine gunned in its fuselage for effect, like it just barely made it out. The operation had the approval of the CIA, the JCS, and the president, JCS being the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Zuniga landed his plane in Miami shortly after the bombing raid that began that same day. So you had simultaneously planes leaving from Nicaragua at this uh, Puerto Cabezas location and flying towards Cuba to attack their three major airfields. At the same time, you had this plane with Mario Zuniga coming into somewhere in Florida to stage the appearance for press release purposes of this being an uprising that's going on in Cuba, not a standalone CIA-funded, CIA-trained, CIA-operated employment of Cuban uh, exiles and others. His cover story, according to Wise's book, Their Invisible Government, is that, that the attack had been carried out from bases inside Cuba by himself and other pilots defecting from Castro's Air Force. The other component, of course, was this uh, brigade's air base in Puerto Cabeza. Again, this is Nicaragua. It's on the Caribbean coast. This is a 2506 brigade's air base. They had about 580 miles from the landing area, which was around two hours and 50 minutes flying time in a B-26. And though flying from a distance base, the B-26s could carry out their mission with a full load of machine guns, bombs, and rockets, and then remain over Cuban territory in that Bay of Pigs area or wherever for an hour or more to lengthen the time over the combat area. The space in the tail normally used for tail gunners was filled with extra fuel. Grand Cayman Island, as the British territory, had a radio beacon marking the halfway point on their way to Cuba. So the Bay of Pigs landing was on the 17th of April, 1961, but the preliminary attack was on April 15, 1961, when eight of these B-26 planes forming three different strike forces left Nicaragua. One was the Linda Wing. It was led by Luis Cosme. He's a former Cuban Air Force and Cubana Airlines pilot. And his target was the uh, San Antonio de los Banos Airport, which had five B-26s and three T-33 planes and three Sea Furies, several of which were not in flying condition. So there's eight planes there. Notice that all of their planes are either B-26s, T-33s, or Sea Furies. And the more offensive types of planes, of course, were the T-33s and the Sea Furies. The second wing was the Pumalit wing, and it was led by Jose Crepo. Their target was Camp Libertad airfield, closer to the Havana, on the outskirts of Havana where U-2 photos had shown a lot of vehicles loaded with bombs and armaments, including munitions for the four muzzle anti-aircraft guns that were properly known as four mouths. All six pilots and their co-pilots died within 48 hours of these, these six planes. 
And then the third one was the two planes that targeted the last of the Air Force bases, which was Antonio Maceo Airport. That's all the way down there at Santiago de Cuba at the very other end of the island from Havana. Intelligence reported that it had one T-33 and one B-26 and two Sea Furies and the only hydrofoil PBY plane in Cuba. So if you do the math, you can see that Cuba's Air Force consisted of less than, you know, a dozen planes. And Castro went to considerable lengths to hide those planes. So the airports at Ciudad Libertad and, and San Antonio de los Banos and Santiago de Cuba were all bombed on the dawn of April 15, 1961. The attacks were repelled with some planes from the Cuban Defense Forces being destroyed. However, mission failed to render useless the small, recently established Air Force. This was thanks to the courageous performance of the anti-aircraft artillery made up almost entirely by young people who would play an extraordinary role. This is interesting, you know, in the revolution of Cuba at that time. Apparently, they had just received these anti-aircraft from, I think, Czechoslovakia. I'm not sure where. But the deal was is that they didn't really know how to operate them. So they would train a couple of Cubans who would then train a couple of more Cubans who would then train another couple of more Cubans because they knew of this impending attack was coming. Meanwhile, Eduardo Garcia Delgado was killed. He was at one of these bases, and he wrote Fidel's name with his own blood on a board as he lay dying. And the next day, on April the 16th, in a famous speech that Fidel gave, Eduardo Garcia Delgado, the one that had wrote Fidel's name with his own blood on this board, was the board was there. It was being displayed by his brother at this rally. So on April 15, 1961, three of Cuba's fighter planes on the ground were destroyed. Uh, the CIA report, there was little operational capacity, scarcity of trained pilots and mechanics, obsolete planes, and no spare parts in Cuba. So just to be clear here, it was on April 17, 1961, after these raids of the air, airfields. This is when the 1,300 approximately exiles landed at the Bay of Pigs carrying the U.S. weapons. Uh, they expected to find support amongst the local population according to the propaganda, but they discovered the opposite. They actually were met by a handful of people from a militia of that area, just, you know, folks that weren't even part of the army, but just were being trained how to protect themselves and use rifles and that type of thing. The important issue to remember is that Castro and his people knew of an impending attack, but he didn't know where, so he had to defend the whole island. And there was a fake uh, invasion point and all of this. And so the idea of setting up this false provisional government very quickly and then being recognized by the United States also complicated things that they had to be put down within a very short period of time. And in fact, it was these militias that saw and then radioed to Havana what was going on. And Fidel then motivated the forces towards that part of Cuba as quickly as possible. Yeah, so here it is, a Cuban Air Force of T-33s and Sea Furies composed of just over a dozen fighter planes. The T-33 had two 50 caliber M3 machine guns to intercept and fight the enemy in the air. If there was a landing, the Sea Fury, which carried more missiles and bombs, was designed for attacking ships. The Sea Fury pursuit planes were slower than the T-33s, but had much greater speed and maneuverability in the air than the heavy B-26s. Just a profile of a couple of these pilots, this one captain in Enrique Carreras, strapped into a Sea Fury, which again was slower but carried bombs. This guy had no combat experience, but he was the most experienced pilot. Quote, the automatic starters on the old British Sea Furies didn't work. The mechanics had to start their single engine each time with a boot, a socket, and a rope. Think about that for a second. That's that old deal where you see them, 
yanking down on a rope to start a propeller. This is what this is what Cuba had. They didn't have anything except revolutionary fervor and a homeland or death revolutionary integrity, which was the most powerful agent in this whole fiasco to defend Cuba. The burners on the T-33s were so worn that the engines developed ex- excessive temperatures. Sometimes there was a flame out and a crash on takeoff. Quote, one such wrecked T-33 was parted out to patch another. Then it was a flame out. They called these planes homeland or death planes, as you can probably imagine why. So this pilot, Enrique Carreras Arolas, he had seven missions. In a sea fury, he sunk one of the ships at the Bay of Pigs, and he shot down two B-26 bombers. Another pilot, Colonel Avero Prendes Quintana, he had 14 missions. He was a T-33 pilot. He shot down three of the B-26s. Overall, during the three-day of nonstop missions, there were nine B-26 bombers that were shot down from the invading force. Two ships were sunk, the Houston and the Maropa, M-A-R-O-P-A. They were two belly rolls returning to base to show that this is, uh, that, we, that we sunk these two ships, according to the documentation here in this book by Rodriguez that was another source of a lot of this information. Three landing craft were sunk. Meanwhile, the airplanes provided air cover for the Cuban revolutionary troops that were on the march to defend the island from the invasion. My friend Israel explained to me the sound that he'll never forget of the airplanes coming and the bombs going off and everything during that period of time, that 60 years ago. Also, if you frequent the Museum de Jaran, which is the museum that's right there where the invasion occurred there, which I've done several times, it uh, has the documentation of many of the fatalities, the total losses of the revolutionary forces during that 66-hour battle were 156 dead and approximately 500 wounded. So in order to tease out fact from fiction, to tease out revisionist history from real history, JFK advisor Arthur Schlesinger, he wrote, quote, The reality was that Fidel Castro turned out to be a more formidable foe and in command of a far better organized regime than anyone had supposed. His patrols spotted the invasion at almost the first possible moment. His planes reacted with speed and vigor. His police eliminated any chance of sabotage or rebellion behind the lines. His soldiers stayed loyal and fought hard. He himself never panicked, and if faults were chargeable to him, they were his overestimate of the strength of the invasion force and undue caution in pressing the ground attack against the beachhead. His performance was impressive, end quote. In October 1992, letter excerpts from Arthur Schlesinger Jr. included the following, I am sure that the cancellation of the airstrikes is much overrated as a factor in the outcome. Castro had dispersed his planes after the first strike. Canceling the later strike made no great difference. There would still have been a tiny invading force facing 200,000 or so of Castro's army and uprising behind the lines of a U.S. invasion force. I agree with you that Dulles probably counted on direct U.S. intervention when the invasion faltered. The project was a terrible idea doomed from start to finish, or so it seems to me. I also wanted to add that one of the amazing things about this revolution and Fidel Castro was his example. Once the landing forces had landed and there was the initial resistance by the local militias, Fidel did not only just motivate all of his forces to that area, he led those forces. He was on a tank 
in a tank, famously pictured as bombs were blowing up in different areas close to his person, directing the offensive. He knew that the balance of the revolution was in this battle. And while people were imploring him to get out of harm's way, he did not. And then lastly, the most significant thing about this whole invasion, as opposed to the revisionist history, this invasion repelling, this successful invasion repelling by the Cuban government and its people was the first defeat of U.S. imperialist designs in the Western Hemisphere in history. And believe me, it resonates very strongly for that purpose and for that reason throughout the developing world. I wanted to end the show on the Bay of Pigs here with just some thoughts and documentations about misconceptions about the Cuba-U.S. relations. From the very beginning, Cuba sought relations and trade relations with the United States following its revolution that came to power on January 1st, 1959. At every juncture, the U.S. turned them away, essentially said you must subordinate your sovereign choices to the dictates of our demands. Uh, Oil refineries in Cuba, owned by multinational interests, refused to refine Soviet oil imported by Cuba, for example, and that led to Cuba nationalizing. They needed oil. They said, if you're not going to do it, we're going to take over your company and then paid compensation to said companies. But instead, we are taught that we are responding to irrational Cuba aggression against U.S. economic interests, when in fact, clearly the much stronger evidentiary argument could be made that the irrational and profoundly unfair trade relations were being imposed on Cuba and every other country in the the hemisphere by the United States. This is what Fidel and Cuba were arguing, and this put into jeopardy huge profiteering margins that imperialism, is what he called it, had created and nurtured. And this is why Cuba has got to go. This is why it was never given the oxygen to survive. This is why Cuba's economic example must be asphyxiated and distorted into the appearance of a failed economic system, of a failed system in which everyone is impoverished and fighting to meet basic needs. It is in this context that Cuba developed close trade ties with the USSR. This is after the U.S. trade embargoes and after making approaches to the United States and getting rebuffed, made it impossible for really Cuba to trade with anyone else. And we're running out of time, and there's much more to cover, but I think we've covered some important points. And the last one has to do with so much around the world. You know, when you think about the opposition within Cuba, you should also consider how much money we pour into Cuba trying to create that opposition. And it occurs that without U.S. funding, would there be anything to fund? Uh, It's not to say that the Cuban model is a perfect model by any stretch. uh, But based on my experience and research, I believe it is a principled model. See you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on koop.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety.
Associate 